Hi, I'm Sahil. And I'm Huda. And this is The Power of One. My name is Ye Bako. I am from Columbus, Ohio. I was originally born in Nigeria, but my family moved to the United States when I was two years old. I became a social justice advocate uh, shortly after going vegan. I've been vegan now for almost four years, and I got into this space because of the second wave of Black Lives Matter and the realization that we can't separate animal rights issues from human rights issues, that it has to be about collective liberation. And ever since I made that connection, I've been speaking up for both animal rights and human rights and using my social media platforms to engage my followers with content about these subjects. So let's talk about your life before, you know, your childhood, growing up. Yeah, so basically my family, we first came to uh, Warren, Ohio before we moved to Columbus, Ohio, where I currently live. And it was a really small town. Um, There was not really much to do. My best friends were people from our church community, which were a lot of elderly people. And my sister used to uh, poke fun at me when I was really little because um, my sister, she was one of the last ones to come from Nigeria because um, back in those days, and I'm sure the immigration system is just as complicated now, um, we weren't all allowed to come as siblings altogether. Um, So my sister came later on and, you know, me having a lot of like elderly friends, um, one of my babysitters was Romanian. So I used to have a Romanian accent and my sister would yeah. tease me about that when I was little. Um, All right. <laughs> Three, two, one, go. We want to hear your Romanian accent. <laughs> I can't remember it anymore. I really wish that I could. Man, yeah, that would have been such a skill to... <laughs> yeah, so when I was around nine years old, that's when my family moved to um, Columbus, where we currently live. And, you know, coming from a Nigerian-American family, one of the big pushes, you know, is for education, because that's the reason why my family came here, is to create a better future for us as immigrants mm-hmm. and to be able to take advantage of all the opportunities here. So, um, you know, we all studied hard in school. My siblings, they, you know, all went to university. I went to university. I went to the Ohio State University here. And so did oh, <laughs> oh, oh, the Buckeyes. Yep, the Buckeyes. And um, yeah, my, my mom graduated from OSU as well. And so did my my younger brother. Okay, I'm leaving. I'm leaving this conversation. It's That's nice so funny. Yeah, before we start boxing in here. I have a question, yeah, for you. Um, is Columbus, Columbus, Ohio? Is it named after Christopher Columbus? I think that's part of it. Uh, we have like a replica of one of his ships here, and oh, yeah. I think that they talked something about like removing it, or they already have removed it, or something like that. I can't believe. Like, yeah. it, is, it is weird. We did have a statue of him at our state house, but with the second wave of BLM and when they were talking about taking the colonial monuments down, they did take that one down. It was shipped somewhere else. I don't know where. Well, probably the South. <laughs> Likely story. So, you know, you and both of us, Hura and I, we have a very common story. Uh, coming here as migrants, it was always about, you know, making a better life for ourselves. And that's that's what we were taught. But what we weren't taught at least I wasn't taught was, and what I felt a lot when, especially when I was in university is where did I fit? And, and that kind of really bothered me when I was, you know, growing up 
Like I went from India to America and I was like, I don't know where my place is. Did you ever ask yourself that question? I did. I definitely did. And it wasn't so much as like an identity issue for me. It was just more of I have I had a certain group of friends and I never thought of myself as any different from them. But then I had mm. experiences that made me reflect that, oh, well, maybe I don't fit in with that group either. And then I'm different from them. And I could explain growing up, like I'd always been surrounded by the white community because my dad was the black pastor of a Romanian American church. Oh. So I mm. like all my friends had always been, you know, white up until that point. So like, I never really thought of myself as, you know, a different ethnicity growing up like we never talked about race and mm. when I went to middle school and you know I had you know mostly all white friends there was more there was a few black people in our class because the, the suburban area I grew up was not racially diverse but there were a few black kids in some of my classes and they they pestered me about why my friends were all white and that was really the first <laughs> time in my you know in my youth that I really realized that I never paid attention to that mm -hmm. um, before mm. And, and they teased me for that. So that was when I first really realized like, oh yeah, I am, you know, different for my friends in that way. But I, and I'm like, well, I don't also fit in with the black kids either because one of the things is that I didn't understand black American English. Now they call it Ave, it's like African American mm -hmm. vernacular English. And I thought that they always spoke too quickly and used words that I didn't really understand. And that was just mm -hmm. because of my upbringing who had been surrounded by. So I felt like, oh, I couldn't fit in with that group because I don't really understand them too well. But then they're making me feel, you know, different from the friends that I do have. So that was like the first time I really, you know, questioned like which group do I belong to? And yeah. do you think there's something about being a kid and not even realizing it that you may be different and then suddenly middle school happens? I think that's generally where everyone kind of hits that roadblock and kind of goes, well, maybe I am different. Do you think the conversation about you know, race for the next generations to come in, especially in America, that discussion, when should that happen between a parent and a child or a teacher and a child? I think as soon as possible, I think at school age is an appropriate time, like from the age you're first able to go to school, whether that's preschool or kindergarten or first grade, the sooner I think the better, the sooner the, the child has cognition to um, speak out loud and, you know, be able to identify um, you know, even just primary colors, like have the ability to speak language because in, in society, black people and people of color are discriminated against from the day that they're born until the day they die. So I think everyone should have some sort of cultural awareness that's appropriate for that age group. One of the accounts that I follow on Instagram is about teaching young people about race issues. It's called Conscious Kid. And I think mm -hmm. it's so important for there to be more books, actually, more children's books that teach about these issues more sensitively. And I think that the fact that young black children have to experience racism before young white kids have to learn about it is a real failure in our society. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Absolutely. And I could be wrong, but I also think that even the community of color like you know I'm, I'm talking all of us i feel as if we almost put you know white superiority on a pedestal like we kind of without realizing we push it as well do you think that's true i absolutely agree we live in a global society that's foundation is white supremacy culture but anyone can perpetuate white supremacy culture and it's ingrained in us from a very early age because 
part of it is that it's a survival technique because what white supremacy leverages against all of us is this assimilation culture. Um, we all have to fit into the structure or else we can't get jobs. We can't, yeah. um, you know, get basic social services unless we come with this, you know, um, homogenous worldview or this homogenous appearance. And how I can, you know, relate to that is that I never wore my natural hair from the ages mm -hmm. of 13 yeah. to 20. It was always straightened with chemicals, with chemical relaxer, because when you have your, especially my type of very coarsely curly hair, um, just wearing it naturally is perceived to be unprofessional. So mm. now that we have the whole natural hair movement going all around the world, and it's mm. become socially acceptable to, you know, rock your, your natural hair type, I've been wearing my hair natural since I was 20, but, you know, I had to have my hair straightened in order to fit into school and to fit into university and, you know, this white supremacist society that we take part of. So in a way, I was, you know, perpetuating white, white supremacy, but without mm -hmm. even really realizing it. Yeah. And I find that it's one of those things that I never really thought about, to be honest, until quite recently. And it was when I spoke to people that were brown. You can say my name. No, well, I know you're thinking about me. It wasn't just you. It's not well, just you. Why don't you give me as an example? Because it's an interesting story. Okay. Because I've, cause she's dying to do it. No, she, I'm not dying to do it. You're dying for it. <laughs> so was it about a year ago or something that you said this? We were dry. Well, actually, no, we were at a cafe. Way, I'm, I'm 31, so it's taken me 30 years to realize this. <laughs> so we were at a cafe. There was this European woman, and she was just having a conversation with us while she was making our coffee. And she just goes, oh, you know, where are you guys from? And she had like a French, I think, accent or something. You know, so I was like, I'm from India. And I was like, well, I'm from Pakistan. And as we were talking, she just goes, oh, yeah, you know, one of my really close friends, she married an Indian. And then that was it. And then we were sitting in the car and Sahil goes, that Indian guy, man, he won the lottery. And that just triggered me because I was like, hang on a minute. Why did he win the lottery? Because he married some white French woman. And he's like, yeah, you know, like, how cool is that? How, you know, good on him. And I'm like, but why do you say that? I mean, you don't know anything about this chick. Like... She could just be anybody. And the fact that we're already assuming that just because he's a brown guy and he's got this white woman, he's got the jackpot. Like that sort of instinctual way of thinking. It's it's still triggering her. Like I can feel this venom just coming out of her <laughs> and hitting me in the face. No, I think... But I, I should be allowed to give a brief explanation of where yeah, that comes and that's, from. I'm just saying though. Not justification, but a brief explanation. Yeah, Because I think it's quite relatable. And uh, to... To EA's point about that, like, you know, putting white people on a pedestal, I honestly think at least being from India, like, how can you not when you had 200 years of colonialism? How can you not? I mean, it is part, like, now that I've started learning, you know, we've spoken to more psychologists, intergenerational trauma is a thing. Mm. Like, my grandfather was literally removed from his home in Pakistan and brought to India. And they were told that it's all because the British people wanted it that way. So somebody else is making decisions for us. Yeah. And when that happens, you automatically assume that they are higher than you. So 
you know, when, when I said that this person won the lottery, it was more, sometimes it's part of the migrant mentality. Oh, you go there, you marry a white woman, somehow your life's just going to be better because, you know, they don't have to face as much prejudice. So we will be fine as a couple. And it's and, and it's not until Hura pointed it out, actually months after that I went, holy shit, like, why am I not putting myself on a pedestal? My skin color is amazing. Everything about me is, it is really amazing. <laughs> like the perfection that we have in ourselves as just a human being, we don't really appreciate that. And instead, we always look outwards. Mm. And society dictates it. In a big, big way. But actually, I was in America in 2008. That's the first year I moved here for uni. So I moved to Michigan. And that was the year Obama was elected. And I have never seen anything as magical ever in my life. Like This whole town of Ann Arbor was just on its feet on top of cars. Like white, black, colored people. Didn't matter. Like everyone was cheering that on. What was that like for you? What was that moment for you and your family, I guess? It was magical for me too, because I was studying abroad in Monterrey, Mexico at the time. And mm -hmm. it was a bunch of us international students and um, Mexican students that we went to go watch it together on TV at someone's house. And it was so cool just to see, you know, German students and Austrian students and Mexican students and me and all the other people in this room. We were elated. We were cheering that day on. And that's like the first and last time I've ever experienced that type of euphoria about U.S. politics. And I don't even know if that <laughs> yeah. ever happen again because it was just so unique. And, and moving on, like fast forwarding to Black Lives Matter, when the whole movement kind of, you know, took speed and... I, I really have to admit that I felt quite annoyed when people just started putting those black boxes without knowing what it stood for. And it really, really bothered me because I think sometimes on social media, it's so easy to say, oh, I stand for this and then do nothing about it or not even engage in a dialogue. So I, I know you have a really cool story about how you got involved with the movement itself. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, Black Lives Matter is a formal organization. So I'm not part of Black Lives Matter, the movement. I am just someone who, you know, believes in equality and justice for all people. And obviously, you know, Black lives have value is, is really what we are trying to say when we say Black Lives Matter. Black lives intrinsically have value that we don't need to have a movement necessarily to say this, but it's become incumbent upon the United States and the global community to recognize that Black people have value because historically we've all been put down and it hurts everyone because there's a global epidemic of anti-blackness and it appears in ways that are so insidious and beneath the surface that we don't even realize you know one permutation of that is colorism where you know people are graded on you know the lightness and darkness of their skin the more proximity to have you have to whiteness the more humanity you have and wow. i think that for me when i saw the second wave movement when george floyd was brutally murdered by the police officer i thought up until that point that 
race, anti-racism was something that anti-racist educators use their platforms for, not just like any average individual that just cares about equality. And the reason I felt that way was because I thought that there was going to be so many questions that I wouldn't be able to understand. And I just thought that it would just wreck with my mental health and capacity to be inundated with people trying to learn from me about racial equality when there's already millions of books out there and Mm -hmm. authors who have done this work already. And I wanted to point people to experts as a resource without relying on me to be the resource. But then what ended up happening is that I saw the interconnectedness of uh, animal rights and human rights, and I could no longer turn away from it. And the way that those two things intersected is that after the George Floyd murder and all of these animal rights organizations, and this is not um, specific to the animal rights movement, but organizations mm-hmm. in general, they all wanted to find a way to participate in this Black Lives Matter movement. And initially, that was the performative activism of putting up that black mm-hmm. square. And I, I, I also don't condemn it either. I think people had very good intentions, because mm-hmm. they're like, this is a way to show support and solidarity. I think that the issues arose because there was two mixed things that happened that day. One was the fact that there was the music industry that had this campaign for people to, you know, talk about pausing the mic or something like that for the day. The entertainment industry wanted to talk about how to compensate Black music artists better. And I had read about that and I wanted to participate. And then I found out that there was this whole separate thing of like two Black women who were doing a different campaign that was like, you know, past the mic for for the day, which is allow uh, Black people to speak about, you know, racial injustice for the day. But then there's these two different things that were happening on the same day. People got totally confused what they were supposed to be doing. Um, because mm-hmm. I think the idea was for non-Black people to have a day of silence and boost the engagement of um, Black people in their feed. And I don't think anyone got the communication of what was supposed to happen. It would have been more effective if, you know, if it wasn't a Black square, if it was like resources being passed around, like, you know, here are the organizations you can donate to, here are people you can amplify. So the other campaign was Amplified Melanated Voices. I couldn't remember the name of it, but that was the other initiative that was supposed to be going on that day that people totally missed the message. But, um, you know, people should have been talking about here are Black content creators that you could follow and engage with on social media. So I do initially think that there was many people who had really good intentions. But once I caught wind of the hashtag feed and how it was all blacked out and it was useless and it wasn't helping anybody, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I took my initial black square down because I I was, you know, bandwagoning with like the music industry campaign that I had read about and why, why people were doing that. But I don't think anyone really read <laughs> into why people were posting the black square. People no. just did it one after the other because it was trending. In the- it was yeah. trending. Yeah. And that's something I actually have a massive issue with. I think that, you know, we like to be a part of the movement because it looks good, but we don't take the time to actually understand what it is that's happening. And, and that was kind of the problem where which yeah, you're talking about is 
it, it's not as much. I think the intention was good behind putting that black square up. What happens after that is misinformation that goes out. And that itself is a big problem in the world right now. And I heard other terrible things about that day, which was that the Black Lives Matter protests were really getting extremely popular during that time. There was a lot of resources being passed to activists about how to stay safe or things that the police were doing to target and harass protesters that were being hidden by those black squares. And so some people are saying that the mixed messages about the amplified melanated voices and the music industry's campaign to like pause the mic or something like that for one day were being co-opted by outside forces to really intentionally confuse people because they wanted mm. the hashtag feed to be blank like that so that resources could not be passed back and forth between protesters about the police actions that were being taken on that day. I get really confused by these things because sometimes like by having a day, are you already segregating? Because every day should be that. Yeah, I like, absolutely so. agree. It, it was really pointless too because what the record industry wanted to say is that they're listening about the demands that black artists have, but black artists have one demand and that's to be paid equitably. So they already yeah. knew that. It's just like pass them the money. Like why do you need to have a day to listen and learn about it? Exactly. <laughs> that's the thing. And It's like just give me the money just just write the check just write the check (laughs) i do think when we have days i get it it's like oh you know take a moment to think about it but i do think that that gives everyone the free pass to act however they want every other time but this one particular day you better you better get your shit together yes that Mm. that is it (laughs) it's like the other days of the year oh mate you can be be an asshole that's fine no worries about it (laughs) like i i'm sure you know uh yeah that there's a day uh we've got australia day um Mm. here which is as fucked up a day as thanksgiving and i also wanted to ask about thanksgiving what's the deal with that why why are we still celebrating thanksgiving and it's the same (laughs) with australia thanksgiving is that like my post about it didn't have to necessarily do directly with thanksgiving but it was posted around thanksgiving time because the native american population here in the united states or indigenous people's population here they want to replace Thanksgiving with Indigenous Peoples Day. And some hmm. some jurisdictions already recognize this, but not all. But it's literally my most hated post on Instagram by, <laughs> by, like, by the right wing. Like I muted the the comments a couple weeks ago because for some reason they some right wingers found it um, <laughs> and they were just like going off on it all over again. But the comments oh under it were so ridiculous. Like some people were just praising Christopher Columbus again or saying like indigenous people's lives don't matter like they were just going off the rails on it people were really upset and all the post says is indigenous people's day is every day agreed <laughs> yeah and, and which and is quite what a harmless post <laughs> yeah. so how do you take that sort of negative comments and how I mean how does that feel for you well the first thing is boundaries at first i didn't moderate my comment section because i thought it was good for the community to see what was being said i've never seen anyone get a upset about certain things within the vegan community that were posted but hatred people have you know just for pointing injustices that exist within the vegan community then you really will see how these injustices are very very real and how people are struggling with them today so especially with that indigenous people's days everyday post because i was looking through my friends stories and one of my friends is an indigenous american they had posted something about like reading through the comments like messed up my mental health for a whole day 
and I was oh. thinking about myself and I was like, well, you know, I wasn't too, you know, poorly impacted because I'm not taking anything personally, but when it impacted, you know, the people that I care about and I was thinking, well, that person's probably representative of a number of people who are indigenous who had to read these comments and was really hurt by them. So I have since started moderating my comments. I, you know, some of them are frustrating and like they stir me up a little bit and I delete them and others of them are just like hilarious because they come from such a place of ignorance. Um, Um, But I just, I just have my boundaries set to where I don't really let these things get to me. Um, I do my best to respond to them when they're genuine comments that are out of left field, but I feel like there's a possible way to engage with that person. But when it's just people being mean and nasty and just trolling my comment section, I don't even bother with them anymore. I think that the block and delete is there for a reason and I use it. I mean, how does this impact your personal life and everything as well? Like, you know, when, when we follow you on social media, we, we get to see, you know, you, just you as your life through this bubble of social media, but you are this person outside of it. Mm. And, you know, you have a family and you have people around you that depend on you. So how does it affect that? Because I guess we want people to know that it's 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 a full-time job doing uh, this kind of work. It does really feel like that. And I do have um, a full-time day job. And at the same time... What is that? So I work at a bank and I work in our Ooh. investigations department for credit cards. So I deal with, you know, cases where customers get upset about how the banking industry has handled their credit card concerns and I have <laughs> you're just like I have bigger fish to fry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I so I have to like research and investigate if we have any bank errors and make sure, you know, our bank is compliant with everything. So that's what I do during the day. <laughs> so when I when I'm on social media and I'm doing um, you know, social justice activism, I I feel like that's like a sweet spot for me. I really enjoy doing it. I've built up such an engaged following And, you know, I don't really think of them as like my followers. I think of them as my community. And Mm -hmm. I enjoy talking with people in my, you know, my direct messages. And then when I log off from that space, you know, I I have a big family. I have my mom, my dad here, um, my brothers and my sisters. And my dad actually right now is going through cancer treatment he was in remission for a while and then it's it's spiked up again so Mm. you know he had a stroke several years ago so his mobility is not that good so he Mm. needs constant attention and you know people to like run and fetch things for him a lot so i stay pretty busy you know and then on top of like you know working on my social media page i get you know awesome opportunities like this to do podcasts and interviews or new products and things like that so um yeah i'm always working around the clock and i think that uh, something that's really important for for activists or in general is just to find space of time for yourself to just so you don't get burnt out to decompress and you know do your own stuff so i found those in two spaces which is like doing skincare which is like a stereotypical one and i don't think that like self-care has to be something you spend money on you know it could be as simple as you know reading a book or writing in a journal 
And I also just find that with, I like to watch international TV shows. So me and my friends are really obsessed with like Asian, you know, TV dramas right now. And oh, is it like uh, Korean? Are they Korean ones? Is it Korean TV shows? Not Korean ones, but not like... Of course. <laughs> not like K-pop. Not just like K-dramas and stuff, but we like, um, like Thai dramas and... Oh. A Taiwanese dramas like we go into all of them and we you that's pretty s- cool you gotta start watching Indian movies so we can talk about it <laughs> so we can talk about these <laughs> so yeah we, we have a little group chat and we talk about those so like those are like my little areas of like self-care is like watching my little international shows and doing my hmm. skincare but I think it's so essential you know talking about things that are essential one of one of the big things I guess we face right now as you know considering all of us have day jobs for a lot of people we talk to you know the idea behind uh, starting power of one is is telling people how on an individual level they could make a difference because we just don't know where to start sometimes and like there's so many issues at hand and I think the the fact that you've put animal cruelty and at the same time like kind of saying that that has this intersection with you know uh, human rights as well I think many people think of them as independent things yeah so how did you kind of you know start this conversation that hold on if you make a difference in one thing it could actually have a larger effect on other things absolutely so initially that concept i learned about it through the lens of intersectionality which is a framework developed by law professor kimberly crenshaw and the reason why she developed it was to bridge the gap in a law perspective for for black women because in the law it was recognized that you know racism is an issue in the workplace and so is you know sexism so you know if you go into a workplace for example and you want to claim you're experiencing discrimination well it was easily recognized that you know a white woman would experience discrimination or a black man would experience discrimination based on race and one based on gender but there wasn't a way for black women to be seen in the law framework and she developed the term intersectionality a lot of people use the word intersectionality loosely to just talk about how two forms of oppression can be going on simultaneously and mm. i i feel like it's not the best framework for animal rights because it became a buzzword it's become so watered down that anything that has any slight intersection is labeled as intersectionality and i think that the world has lost like its its power and 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 it needs to be i don't necessarily believe it needs to be just restricted to its original purpose because even kimberly crenshaw herself has said that she's fine with people using it in different contexts i just don't feel like it's inclusive enough of the forms of oppression and how they're layered upon each other and connected i don't think it's the best term to describe it so other terms that i've shifted to are total liberation and collective liberation talking about how these things these these systems of injustice are interconnected and i absolutely believe that you can advocate for animal liberation and human liberation at the same time because at the root of it all oppression is connected whether that's racism whether it's sexism whether it's queer phobia or fat phobia or ableism and the list goes on and on and on when you're dismantling any form of oppression these things are kind of like an interlocking fence because the reason why 
people and non-human animals are oppressed is because of othering. So othering is something that is experienced with any of these systems of injustice. You know, Black people and other people of color are marginalized because they're deemed as other in comparison to white mm. people. Or women are deemed as other in comparison um, to men. Or, you know, disabled people are deemed as other in comparison to able-bodied people. So it's the othering yeah. that is the, the root of all the problem. So if you're working on anti-racism, you're working on dismantling othering. If you're working yeah. on, you know, queer phobia, you're working on dismantling othering. So I think that you don't necessarily need to say, like, I'm going to, on Mondays, advocate for queer, queer rights. On Tuesdays, it's animal rights. Yeah. On, on Thursdays, it's ableism. If you're working on any of those forms of oppression, you're already dismantling one link of that chain link fence. And the whole system is going to come crashing down. That's the best way anyone's ever put it. Yeah, and, and that actually puts a really encouraging message forward and inspires people. I think it's so inherent. and like, It's easy to do because it's, you know, it's what we've been taught. Yeah, and, and I wonder, are we inherently, and yeah, please, please let us know as well, are we inherently inclined towards segregation? I don't think so. I think that it had to be constructed because even race is a constructed system. Mm -hmm. I think that the reason why humanity has progressed so far and it's been studied is because of collaboration. Uh, competition is actually what's stagnating human progress right now. Mm. So no, I don't think that we're inherently driven towards segregation. I think that segregation is a tool of oppressing people, but that people, we work better together than we do apart. Humanity developed out of communal cultures and taking care of one another. You know, segregating is what's happening now with this culture of individualism and everything for myself. And you're noticing that elderly people are suffering, disabled people are suffering because what we did in the past in human history was that there was always someone taking care of someone else who had a more difficult time. Yeah. And, and I think it's the uh, it's that capitalistic idea of every man for himself. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and that man eat man world, you know, all yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's a rat race, and it's it's all a constructed system. And that's when we think that we have to do it for survival or to fit in, because everyone else does it. You don't question it. Like the way we grow up is to not question things. Whatever's yeah. happening, you know, your friends are doing it, your family's doing it. I mean, that's how I lived half my life. Yeah, but if you if you go back to like prehistoric times, if the leader of the group said, we need to move now, and everyone would go, okay, we just move. And that's, that's why I think as humans, we are so scared to ask. Indian culture is like the prime example of that. Yeah, we always uh, had this discussion. We always told like, respect your elders. But nobody told us why. And so if you asked why, nobody had a reason for it. And then all you got was, why are you asking these questions? Because you're a child. Yeah, Nigerian culture is very much the same. I was going to say. Yeah, it is about we respect our elders. And, you know, we even give them certain like honorific titles and, and things mm. like that. It, it, I think that there should be some level of respect, but it should be mutual. And then the additional respect yeah. should be earned not just like based on age because you can grow in age and not in wisdom exactly 100%, yeah well actually actually talking about that uh yeah you've got to watch this new movie that's come out which is uh about this indian guy and the nigerian girl 
on Netflix. Do you know about this movie? No, it's not come to my attention. It's called. It's it's not a great title. I have a problem with how what the title of this movie. It's called Namaste Wahala. Oh, I see. Because they kind of mix like African slang with like, yeah, 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 Indian. Yeah, I see. Because <laughs> we say Wahala in in Africa. A lot of us exactly have a problem. Ex- yeah, yeah. They just took not the most generic word. Greeting. Yeah, <laughs> just yeah. merged the two. <laughs> because nobody in India says Namaste anymore. I haven't said Namaste. Namaste in years. I I hear more Namaste in the Western world rather than in India. <laughs> Globalization, man. <laughs> I know. So yeah, watch it and let us know what what you thought about it. Sure. Well, before we finish off, I do want to know what you envision the future to be like, or what your plans are for the future. Well, I want to see in my spaces a more diverse and inclusive movement for animal rights and human rights i think that we should stop siloing these things and i think i already see you know the beginnings of a progression of animal rights organizations moving towards talking about human oppression issues but i'd also like to see social justice activists from all spheres and walks start to speak about animal oppression and i think that that's one of the things that animal rights activists decry all the time is why do we have to be outspoken about every single issue yet other movements don't have to be outspoken about animal rights so i i'm hoping with the work that i'm doing to make it clear to other social justice movements that non-human animals need to be intrinsic to the conversation about oppression that they are other oppressed beings and i also want to see just more of a focus on you know black indigenous people of color in social justice because you know we were seeing more awareness as, as to the fact that we're being left out of these conversations and especially when it comes to global issues like climate change you know our communities are on the front lines for experiencing the harshest effects of climate change but when you see the prominent people speaking up about this topic and no shade to her but like you know Greta um Thunberg oh, yeah. Thunberg it's like the <laughs> yeah. face of you know the climate change movement yet you know people in India and Pakistan and in different countries all over in Africa are the first ones experiencing but they're yeah. not the face of the movement at all so I'm just looking forward to a future in which BIPOC black indigenous people of color are recognized for the work that we do and that all social justice movements recognize in rights especially people like Malala who are now one of the few people I know about who've got that recognition and who've kind of deserved it and who's got a platform to talk about you know what's what's happened in Afghanistan and Pakistan yeah and she continues to shed light on issues that especially the western world have no idea about even though the western world has started numerous wars in that area oh my gosh yeah it's <laughs> i mean the le- the level of cognitive dissonance or it's just imperialism they don't want to recognize certain things so it's intentional <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for your time it was lovely to meet you thank you so much for having me it's my pleasure <laughs> all right <laughs> see ya thank you yeah have a good night you too bye